Can we thank our worship team for that? So, so good. Good morning, Sunners. How are you doing today? Good. You heard earlier we have nine days until Christmas, which is crazy. Yes. So I want to reiterate what Pam shared with you earlier. Thank you, Jake. Let's thank Jacob right now. Jake, thank you for doing this week in and week out, the man behind the scenes. Uh, our Christmas services next weekend, like Pam said, are all the same. So 10.30 on Sunday morning, 3 o'clock, and 4.30 on Monday. And please, when you're considering the canned good that you're going to bring, make sure it's good, right? Not canned bad, canned good. So something that you yourself would actually consume. Is that fair? Yes. yes. Okay. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, we'd like to welcome you. Thank you for joining us. My name is Jed it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we are continuing in our series entitled Peace on Earth. And so week one, Britt talked about how God's peace is available to us today. And then last week, Britt spoke about how that peace that we get from God calls us, invites us, and really challenges us to bring that to all of those around us Next week for our Christmas services, Britt is going to be talking about how we are searching and looking for peace in all of the wrong places. And today, I have the opportunity to talk about how peace ought to be more appreciated from the biblical definition and sense. And so my hope is that by the end of this message, you will walk away with a clearer picture of what peace actually means. So this past uh, week I was on a plane flying out to Denver, Colorado, and as I took my seat, I put my headphones on like I'm accustomed to doing, and I started chewing my gum because I get motion sickness, and so I want to prepare myself for takeoff. I forgot my Dramamine pills. I forgot my little things that I press into my wrists, and so I was absolutely intent on not getting disrupted and just focusing on the task at hand. Take off and feel okay. But as I was doing that, they started engaging in something that happens every time you're on an airplane, and it's the pre-flight safety instructional talk. You know what I'm talking about, yes? How many of you really pay attention in that time? Be honest. Okay, a few of you are like, okay. Most of you don't. And so I had my headphones in. I wasn't really paying attention as the loudspeakers came on, and it just hit me. Uh, I don't know if it's because, you know, I'm speaking this week and so I feel like I need to be more in touch with God or something like that. But I felt like, man, it's kind of rude that I have my headphones on. And so I removed one of my earbuds and I proceeded to listen half-heartedly. And I don't know about you, but those things always get me because some of the flight attendants look like they are just absolutely miserable, right? They're taking the seatbelt buckles and you just feel bad for them as they're like pointing you to the exits that, of course, we hope we don't have to use. But then there are the other ones who are, man, it's like a musical, all right? They're doing the Macarena or the YMCA. You absolutely know where you're supposed to go. At least that is the hope. But the reason why I bring that up is because I think when we talk about things such as peace, we have this tendency to treat it like that pre-flight safety instructional time. In other words, we generally know what's going on, right? We're aware of the fact that there are exits somewhere on the plane. I think that peace is something that I need to have. But when push comes to shove, when the plane starts moving or it gets turbulent, if that flight were to become a cruise, I am pretty sure I really wouldn't know what to do. You know what I'm talking about? 
I mean, that little yellow jacket that they give you, I mean, I know I'm supposed to pull on some string and buckle something, but I would be looking around at everyone around me trying to figure out what in the world I'm supposed to be doing with this little vest. And if the cabin pressure dropped and that mask came down, they tell you, stop screaming and put that thing on, I'm sure I'd still be screaming. So I think when it comes to peace in our lives, we kind of treat it that way. We hear about peace, we can perhaps loosely define it, but this time of year, you're hearing that word a lot. But I can absolutely guarantee you that most of us in this room, probably all of us, we don't really know what to do or how to get it or how to go about living in it and experiencing it. Are you with me? So this morning, to talk about peace, we're going to use the imagery of puzzles. How many of you grew up in a family where you puzzled together? Yeah, maybe you had a table set aside and you had like that 5,000 piece puzzle or whatnot and it was there, you could work on it. Maybe you had set family times where you all needed to be there and you didn't want to be there, but that was the family thing to do. So I grew up in a family where we puzzled and you'll see hopefully in a couple moments and throughout this service that peace and puzzles, that's an easy way to remember what peace is supposed to be. So let's start with the first fill in the blank on your note sheet if you have it and if not, that's Okay, the first fill-in-the-blank says this, peace, and in parentheses, is shalom equals wholeness slash completeness. So that word that you have in parentheses there, shalom, is the Hebrew word that we most often translate into peace. The problem, however, is that when you and I think about peace, we tend to think about tranquility or calmness or the absence of war or conflict. But biblically, what is trying to be communicated is a wholeness or a completeness. In other words, it goes beyond just what's happening in your life, but God is after assembling and connecting and making right all that has been fractured and fallen and broken. And so this is why it's helpful for me to use a homonym. You know what homonyms are? Two words that sound the same and are spelled differently. So I could use two homonyms in this uh, sentence. Guess what they are? Uh, bear with me, I may bore you. It's a little chuckles out. The bear and the boar are not animals, right? You, you heard within the context of what I said that I'm saying, please put up with me because I may make you mentally tired and you might not want to listen to me, which may happen. I apologize for that. But bear, animal, bear, put that with me. Boar, I may make you tired. Boar, animal, two words, spelled differently, sound the same. So here's how we can remember what peace is. When you think about peace, think about pieces to a whole like a puzzle. Pieces to a whole. So here would be like the super simple Christian pastorly thing for me to tell you. And we could wrap it up right here. I could say, if you want peace on earth, then take care of your peace. Play your part. Do your thing. Do what God is calling you to do wherever you are with whomever you are with. But let's be honest. If I said, all right, let's go, you might be happy because the message is over. But it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? We're not talking about a puzzle with like four 
pieces. We're talking about a puzzle with thousands of pieces. That's the complexity of your and my life. And so let's begin with three things, three components to puzzling. We're going to parallel putting together a complex puzzle with our search for understanding what God's peace can really look like in our lives. Are you okay with that? So here's the first deal with the puzzle. We are always working to replicate something. What's the most important part to a puzzle outside of the pieces themselves? The box. What they come in. Can you imagine if you were given a puzzle and the box top were bare? It's like jokes on you. Your goal is to put together this 5,000-piece puzzle without having anything to reference. That would be incredibly difficult and not fun. I don't know anyone who would undergo that type of challenge. It's, it's just not how puzzles work. We always have a picture that we are looking at and aiming to recreate. And so the question for you is, what are you trying to recreate? What box are you looking at? What picture are you mentally consumed with and hopes of in your life that coming about? The easy thing to say would be to look at Jesus, and that is the answer, to look at him and consult scripture. But if we were to be honest about how we live our lives, I can guarantee you none of us 100% of the time is considering what God would want for us. We have so many different thoughts that run through our minds. I forgot to mention this first service, but one of the things that I know gets in the way is something that many of you do with countless hours of your week. How many of you spend time looking at the lives of people around you via your phone or your computer? Maybe it's Facebook or Instagram. By the way, if you request to be my friend on Facebook, my thing exists, but I just don't see it. I'm sorry. I stopped using that thing years ago. I still have two kids on there. So uh, forgive me if I haven't responded. Maybe I'll, I'll go back after this message and accept your friend request. But think about the hours of your life that you've spent looking at people around you and comparing their experiences or what they have or what you're going to put out into the universe via your feed. And if you were to weigh those thoughts on a scale, I mean, what's the percentage of the things that were life-giving to you but the stuff that actually brought you down? When you think about success or relationships or your finances, what box are you looking at? And here's the problem with us. We tend to look at one box, and the next moment we're looking at another. We lack the consistent picture. I want to read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is a long section. I'm going to break it up in bits and pieces. It's for you there on the screen, but try and track with what is being written by the author here. Scholars would say Solomon, but also there is a question about whether or not it was a man named Koholeth, which we see in the Hebrew, but that's another deal. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the writer says, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure, enjoy yourself. But again, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
I searched with my mind how to cheer my body was wine. My mind still guiding me was wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Skip to verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Skip to verse 18. I hated all my toil, in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes someone who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain from which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. And that's the word of God for you this morning. Man, that's good stuff. How many of you guys have read that before? And you don't need to raise your hands, but this is the type of scripture that we're probably not accustomed to reading on Sunday morning. We hear a sermon about peace on earth, and we want the stuff that makes us feel good, a quick hit, an injection that'll get us to feel like, okay, I can do it, this isn't that hard, it's pretty easy, but how many of you have come to a place in your life where you don't really enjoy what you're doing? I mean, how many of you have considered your work or lack of work or relationship or lack of relationship, your finances or lack thereof, all of the things that can get you to feel like, I actually don't have it all together. Here's the next component to puzzling. You and I, we can only fixate on one area for so long. Now, if you are a puzzler, if your family puzzled, you understand there's some basic strategy, right? You open the box, you dump out the pieces, you, you make sure everyone can see the picture, and then what do you go after first? The corners, right? You get all the corners because that's straightforward, literally. You take them off and you separate them to a section. And maybe someone gets to do the easy part and assemble the borders, but that's what you do first. And then after that, you start separating colors to the likeness of the box. And in first service, I kept saying Bob Goff because I'd seen a Bob Goff book recently, but I meant to say Bob Ross. Because if we were doing a Bob Ross painting... Right? And we're talking about his complicated but peaceful billows of water and, and the sky. At some point, you get really frustrated looking at the same shades of blue, and you don't want to puzzle anymore. That's at least how we approach the literal act of putting together puzzle pieces. But what about the stuff in your life that's actually keeping you up at night? What's interesting about us as humans is we don't just get to think about something, okay, I'm going to temporarily suspend that and I'll focus on this. No, 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 no. If you are struggling with something, it is making everything a struggle. If there's something that's weighing you down, it is weighing down your ability to do pretty much everything. 
You can think that you can compartmentalize, and maybe you can for a little bit, but at some point in time, the burden and the weight of whatever it is you are trying to shoulder or carry on your own will collapse you. And that's okay, because you're a human. And just like we did in Ecclesiastes, instead of just giving you the answer in Scripture, let me show you a place that can speak to that. You know, the Bible is not just for getting the answers. Look at how we can empathize with this man named Asaph. And by the way, if you want to read a psalmist named Asaph who's incredibly honest and raw, who's not named David, Psalm 73 to 83, there's this man who has a collection of psalms. And look what he writes in Psalm 77. Verse 1, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Wills the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I love that too. I love that because I myself as a person have questioned God in this way. And if you don't think that God can handle your questions and God isn't big enough, he can't not just handle it. He puts it in scripture so that you and I have a pattern to actually go about being honest with him. We can only deal with something for so long. And if you've ever felt like you are so tired and exhausted, but you can't, when you put your head down, find rest or sleep, if you've ever had a mind that will not stop racing, if you have ever looked around and wondered if and when it's ever going to get better, if you have felt that God is so distant that he can't possibly come near, may I remind you again that that exists right here. It's here. And if people try and give you a version of the Bible or any of this without being honest with that, they haven't given you it all. Here's a third piece to puzzling. We contribute to the complexity of the puzzle. Now, there are really simple ways that we do this. When you open the box and you pull out the pieces, you might start messing around with them. You might accidentally knock one off the table. You may just cover up something that you need, but I'm going to confess something that I confessed for the first time in first service. So you don't get to hear it raw. You're going to hear it with me being polished over. Here's what it is. When I was a kid and we were doing puzzles, I would, I don't know if my dad's here today. Dad, are you out there? Okay, good. I would, I'd take a few puzzle pieces and I would hide them and stick them in my pocket. Yep. Because, you know, I just figured, like, I'm a kid, and I want some attention. I want to be the hero at some point. And so there would be all these sections, and then something would be missing, right? And I'd kind of look over, examine the colors. I'd excuse myself to the bathroom, and I would take out my sash, and I would look through the pieces, and I'd go, okay, I think this is the one. Put the others back. I'd walk back out, you know, hang out for a little bit, and then inconspicuously, I'd be like, there it is. 
Anyone else do that? No? Oh my goodness, you guys are liars. I know there has to be someone else that could help me feel less guilty about that. Maybe your little sibling did it, right? Your little sibling? Yeah. I did that. You and I, we hide stuff that contributes to the complexity of our longing and our lack of peace, don't we? Here's the deal. I, I could just say, stop doing that. It's not good. I could say, let me, let me show you a place in Scripture where that answers the problem. Uh, by the way, the, the citation that I have there, that first king spot, it speaks to Elijah the prophet who, who comes to the end of himself. He literally had a mountaintop experience with God where he shows that God, Yahweh, is the only true God, and he prevails over the prophets of Baal. But then Elijah is so fearful of his life and what's going to happen to him, he goes into the desert, sits underneath a tree, and says, God, just take my life. I'm done. And I know what it's like to come to a place where you are so exhausted, you, you, it'd just be a lot easier if you weren't on this planet anymore. See, that again, it, I could say, here's how you fix that, but it's the reality of that existing is right here. It, we're complex beings. Our puzzles, our lives, we may come into this space and project that we have it all together. But you don't need to lie to me. Let me show you a video that I showed a few months ago. Now, we were in a series called Enjoy where we were in the book of Philippians. And I was tasked with a really long section. I think it was like chapter 3 to a lot of chapter 4. And when Brent and I were talking about this series several months ago, he said, hey, you could come back to that section in the Peace on Earth message. And so here we are, all these months later. So I'm going to show you a video of my six-year-old son. I can't resist it. It's just so cute. If you were here a few months ago, I'm sorry. But if you weren't here, you're in for a little treat. Uh, this is my six-year-old son, Thaddeus, uh, with Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. It's a tearjerker. I don't know if you had any idea what that was saying. You know, the R's sound like W's and all that stuff. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in 
Christ Jesus. And we share that, we say that, and we can say it calmly, we can say it peacefully. But if I were to tell you, hey, give me your issues, tell me what's going on, and then pause, let me give you some scripture to take care of that for you, I don't think you'd appreciate me very much. And the Word of God is so powerful because we don't have to treat it like it's a platitude. We don't have to use it like a bandit. In fact, it is so powerful because when we read it, we can think critically and honestly about what exists so that it would need to say that to us. I don't stand here or sit here before you and say, uh, would you please sit down? Because you're sitting down right now. And so in scriptures, we've said time and time again, when it says something, when it states something, when it commands or invites or challenges us, it is assuming that the opposite is at hand. So when you hear rejoice in the Lord always, you don't need to feel like, man, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing that. The reality is, okay, that's probably what you're doing. So let me give you the opposite of what exists in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It's up on the screens. I struggle to see God's grace and respond. Again, I really struggle with that. A lot of people would say that I'm stressed and kind of on edge. The Lord feels distant. I'm anxious about pretty much everything. I pray about, well, I'm too stressed to devote prayer to much of anything. I guess I do ask God for things, but isn't Thanksgiving the holiday we kind of just celebrated? If God has any peace for me, how I should go about getting it transcends my understanding. So Christ Jesus, please guard my mouth from saying what's really on my heart and mind. We chuckle, you know, but that, I feel that. I'm a person just like you. I can wear the title pastor, but I'm a person. That title doesn't mean anything. I've got a life just like you. I've got a puzzle just like you. And even though it's different, it's, it's not together. It's not whole. It's not all right. This past Monday, I was speaking with a friend here at church, and he and his wife, they've been Christians for all the time they've known each other. They've, they've raised their kids here. It, but... For whatever reason, in the last several months, they're having these conversations about the discomfort that they can feel when they're here at church. And how there seems to be so much more comfort for one of them when they are with their friends that aren't believers and when they're not in church and with people that are skeptical and are doubting. And, and I was talking to my friend and I don't know what the assumption was about what I would share, whether or not I'd say, hey, that's not right. You guys just need to be here. But to me, when I hear someone talk about their discomfort in the church setting, I get that. Because it's really frustrating to walk into these doors and have to pretend or feel like I've got to pretend that I've got stuff all together because I'm about to go on stage, and, and I don't know about you, you can walk through these halls and you hear things like peace on earth, you hear these worship songs, and maybe you feel like you've got to cover up or repress or hide the stuff that's really going on, but what I wanted my friend and his wife to know is that if there's any place where we ought to be able to share, it needs to be here. Here's the question I'd like to ask you. What is wholeness if we fail to admit our brokenness? 
Is it really wholeness? Is it really the entire picture if we are denying so much of what is there? You know what I love about the Hebrew word shalom? Is that the depth of this word is attempting to communicate something we can't just see. It is attempting to communicate the reality that wholeness assumes that unexpected, paradoxical, surprising opposites can somehow connect with each other. When you look at the pieces of a puzzle, you don't have two pieces that look the same. If they look the same, they would not fit. They must look different. And that's why shalom is used as a greeting and a farewell. It's used for saying, I've arrived, I'm about to depart. And when you think about what God is after in this world, the wholeness, the reconciliation, the redemption, the restoration of all things, he is not saying, well, it's going to be some of that and some of that. No, 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 no. It is taking what we assume can't be together. It's the lion and the lamb. If you consider yourself left-wing, you need right-wing. If you consider yourself conservative, you need liberal. If you consider yourself, I see this black or I see this white, you need each other. You and I cannot just think that our position in our lives and our views, whether it's political or spiritual, personal, relational, that you can go about without the other. Shalom, wholeness, is attempting to say that God is the one that can somehow bring all of our brokenness together. Because when that is what is at hand, then none of us gets to say, well, I don't fit with you and you can't sit next to me at church or you're too screwed up or messed up to be here. No, every single person with a beating heart can be and should be allowed to be in this place. Why? Because God is the one that does the unexpected and can somehow bring us together. Isn't Paul the one that writes, he himself is our peace because he has broken down the dividing barrier between us in himself creating one new humanity and reconciling the two? If you don't feel like you can be here, I'm really glad the irony is that you are here. When I was flying out to Denver on Wednesday, and I didn't, I didn't share why. One of my best friends, his father, Brett, unexpect, unexpectedly passed away last week. And uh, Brett would have celebrated his 60th birthday on the 11th. He's the picture of health to me. He was out playing basketball, something that I love to do. Brett was a phenomenal athlete. And out playing basketball, hops in his car. As he's leaving the parking lot, he has a heart attack. And... Uh, Brett's not here anymore. And as I'm sitting during Brett's memorial service, and I'm watching one of my best friends, Garrett, up on stage talking about the lessons that his father taught him about what it is to be a man, to love Jesus and to love family and to love others and make sure all that comes together wherever you are. And I'm watching his little sister, Danny, Danica, up there sharing, and I'm watching his little brother, Lincoln, up there, and I'm thinking about his mom, Darlene, who's now a widow. She's a cancer survivor, and now she's a widow. I, I'm, I'm watching all of this. I'm hearing the sniffling. I'm seeing the tears around me, and, and someone might look at that and go, God, we need your peace for this moment, but you know, shalom means that it was there, because what is peace 
if it cannot admit a lack of peace? What, what is that moment if it's just laughter? I mean, there was laughter, but there were tears too. What is any of this without our honesty about what is making this Christmas season so difficult for you? Because just because all the lights are up and the trees are out and it's decorated so beautifully, I guarantee you that does not communicate well what's actually happening inside of you. In fact, you may be attempting to cover up what's happening with the joy of the season. The joy of the season is Jesus, and Jesus can handle what does not seem joyful or what lacks peace in your life. And if he couldn't, then he wouldn't be the Prince of Peace. I don't know where you're at. I know for me, I'm actually doing all right right now, but that can change in an instant. In first service, I told our folks that every time we sing that song, King of My Heart, you know, the one we sang earlier, it's that, really, it's that jamming one. When it gets to the bridge and it says, you're never going to let, you're never going to let me down, every single time we get to that line, kind of like that other song, you make all things work together for my good, without context, when I see those words as a human being, I struggle. In fact, I get choked up most of the time because I don't want to sing those words, you're never going to let me down. My friend, Garrett, there's one point when we were outside and he started breaking down. He's like, Jed, I don't get how you did this as a 15-year-old when your mom passed. And I don't get it either. And even though I know that God not letting us down is a subjective thing for me in terms of how I see the world, and I know God's not and will not let us down because of what we're celebrating, right? But in terms of how I feel and how I felt and how I'm bound to feel, it will feel like he has let me down over and over and over again. But what is so great is that throughout all of my stuff, the reason why I can still be here on this stage and in this building is because people did not say, here's a Bible verse, stick it on it, and stop questioning God or stop struggling. No, the people in my life, they cared about me enough so that I could actually share my life. You and I need that. And so God and shalom and his wholeness and his peace, it exists for us here now because we can say, I actually don't have it. If you're feeling broken, that's the whole picture that God wants to fix and reconcile. If you're saying, I'm weary and heavy laden and burdened, that's why Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you feel like you're a sinner or you're sick, that's why Jesus says, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. I came to call the sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. If you find yourself in any of those spaces, struggling with any of those things, the irony and the beautiful irony is that is why you and I are here. And I love this whole picture. For all the brokenness and all the goodness, I love this whole picture.